Contrary to how we often think, the celebration of Easter is really not one day. In the church calendar, it's a season. That may come as a surprise to some people because we tend to think of it as one day. That day of the year when we sing Christ the Lord is risen today and in this church we usually hear uh, Vidor's Toccata played and in days of old women came with fancy hats and everyone wears pastel colors and you know it, it's, it's one of those kinds of days. And, and we, we, we celebrate this great day and then we move on to something else. But the ancient church said that's not enough because celebrating Easter is so much more than one day. It's the pivotal point of what it means to be a follower of Christ because the cross only has meaning because Jesus rose from the dead. And so we celebrate this season of 50 days that began on Easter Day and ends on Pentecost, but it's even more than that. In the ancient church, every Sunday is a mini-Easter. Every Sunday is a re-celebration of the resurrection of Christ. So much so that even in the ancient church, where they practiced during Lent, kneeling, when you prayed during Lent, you always knelt as a sign of humility and, and penitence. And you always prayed that way during Lent, except on Sundays. On Sunday, you prayed standing up, celebrating. Because... The celebration of Sunday as a mini Easter supersedes the penitence and the passion of the Lenten observance. And I suspect that in, for most of us, if you've grown up in the evangelical church, we haven't gotten that. But we need to. We need to see that the celebration of Easter, this pivotal point of what it means to be a Christian, is about the the joy that is ours in Christ. And too often, I think, we are so enamored with with penance. And and we're good at that. And we're not very good at celebrating. And I think maybe it's because you can kind of control penance. It's about us. It's about what we come and we do. And we sort of set the ground rules about it. But celebrations can get out of hand. And that makes us a little nervous. Because we like to control things. But the scriptures keep keep telling us that we ought to be the most joyful people on the earth. I was reading something recently where the writer said, Christians ought to throw more parties than anybody else. Christians ought to have more celebrations than anyone else. We ought to be known as the people who celebrate. And I'm not sure that we always are. When I have a baptism class, I, I always ask them a question. And typically, if there are grade school children in the class, I'll get the, these answers. I ask them, tell me about how we use water. And invariably, I always get, um, we drink it, or we use it to bathe or take a shower. And, and I affirm that because and that's very symbolic of what's happening in baptism. Jesus, the living water, fills us and nourishes us. It's the only way we have life, and we are symbolizing that in baptism. And, and the cleansing of our sins through Christ, again, symbolized in baptism. And every group, there's always one of the children that sort of hesitantly raises their hand and says, well, I go swimming in water. 
And, and they, they, it's a part of their life, but they're thinking to themselves, that doesn't sound very spiritual, so I don't want to say it. But I always tell them, that's exactly what I want you to say because water is fun. We use water for all kinds of fun things. Swimming, running through the sprinkler, having water balloon fights. We use water for all kinds of fun things. And baptism ought to symbolize that too. It ought to symbolize the joy that is ours in Christ. Because he who was dead is alive and we are his followers. And he lives in us. And when we come to this sixth chapter of Romans, Paul says, we need to be people who are not enslaved to sin, but people who celebrate the freedom that is ours in Christ. See, we tend to think of the resurrection as that day. We're going to celebrate that eternal life. And we will, and it'll be awesome. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. But the celebration of the resurrection isn't, doesn't, we don't wait for that until that day. We engage in it now. It's about now. And, and a big part of that is setting us free from sin. And if you look at verse 6, Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 14, sin shall not be your master because you're not under law, but under grace. And the resurrection is about setting us free, not just someday, but now too. The people to whom this letter is addressed in Rome understand slavery probably far better than we do. It's a big part of their lives. I'm sure that there were many in the church who are slaves. And there are many there who may have owned slaves Slavery was, and the people who were slaves understood the dehumanizing effect of slavery at its worst. They understood the shame that was accompanied with being a slave. And unfortunately, there are far too many people in our world today who still understand slavery. The shame, the despair, the hopelessness, the vulnerability of being a slave. Having no say over your own life. Paul says that's not the Christian life as God designed it. We've been set free. He writes to the Corinthians, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We have been created for freedom in Christ. But I think that raises other questions for us. The minute we start talking about freedom in Christ, and especially as Paul says, being free from sin, the the question that tends to come up is, does Paul mean that he's talking about sinlessness? He's talking about perfection as we think of it, that we would never sin again? I don't think that's what he's talking about. When you look back through history and God's best people have still continued to wrestle with sin. You go back to Noah. And he says that Noah... Uh, walked with God and he has this great experience of, of the ark and the flood. And yet when the end of the story with Noah, he's, he, he's drunk. And it's a, it's a really bad scene. And you move ahead to Abraham, this, this man who's called a friend of God. And, and, and Abraham is a man of faith. And yet we have at least two stories in Scripture to tell us of, of Abraham 
sacrificing his wife, Sarah, in order to protect himself. And there's Moses who leads the people out of Egypt and he spends 40 days on the mountain with God. He glows when he comes down and yet he gets full of himself. And he starts acting what, in a way that he wants instead of what God wants. And, and it's, he's prevented from entering the, the promised land. And you move to David. David, who, who is described as a man after God's own heart, covets his neighbor's wife, commits adultery, and then conspires to commit murder to cover it up. He moved on to Peter in the New Testament, who... who is, to whom God says, you don't, you don't, people don't have to be Jews before they can become Christians. And they're free of that. And, and Peter embraces that until some of the Jews come along and he gets nervous and he goes back to the old ways again. And even Paul himself is so stubborn about, his, his, about John Mark traveling with them. And he doesn't want to forgive him that he and his best friend Barnabas go their separate ways. Because he just can't see his way to forgive. You move on through history. John Calvin, great theologian, great leader of the church, great man of God, assents to the persecution of those he considers theological enemies. John Wesley, who we trace our theological roots back to, wrote scathing, vitriolic, unchristlike pamphlets about those who disagreed with his theology. Billy Graham great man of God, a great leader of the Christian movement in our nation and even in the world, talks about how back when Richard Nixon was president that he sort of got enamored with all that is the Oval Office and ignored a lot of things that he should have paid attention to. It's not sinlessness. It's not that, that we will never sin. We just aren't chained to sins anymore. And it's God's plan and God's, God's desire for us to be set free from the chains of sin. But we so often are willing to settle for mediocrity. You know, it's good enough. I don't think I want to mess with that. Sometimes I don't want to give that up. Never so often you hear stories about someone who spent 20, 25 years in prison, they're released, and they just don't know how to live out of prison. And, and, you know, everything has changed. They, they feel insecure. They, they don't know how to exist in that culture. And so they, they go and they commit a crime, some, often a petty crime. They make sure they're caught so they can go back to prison. And we scratch our heads and think, who would do that? And yet, how often do we hang on to the sins that chain us because it feels secure? And we're, we're nervous, we're anxious about freedom. It's like the difference between a lion in the zoo and and a lion out in the wild. A lion in the zoo taken care of. They never have to worry about being fed. never have to worry about being protected. They are cared for. Whereas the lion out in the jungle has to scrounge for their own food. They may find it or not find it. And and they may be, they find themselves at the the end of of a hunter's bullet. And they may be uh, searched out by predators out in the jungle. And you look at that and you say, well, it's a lot safer to stay in the zoo. But lions weren't created to live in zoos. They were created to live in the wild, to live in the jungle. And you and I were not created to live chained to sin. We were created to be free and to celebrate the freedom that is ours in Christ. 
it's, it's the, the famous paragraph of C.S. Lewis where he, he talks about the, the promises of God and of Jesus in the Gospels and how the problem isn't that we embrace them too strongly, it's that we embrace them too weakly. That we're so wrapped up with stuff of this world that we're like an ignorant child making mud pies in the slum, ignoring the offer of a holiday at the seashore. We think what we're doing is just great. What could be better? And God has so much more for us. I I love what, what William Sangster said. He's a British pastor back in the early part of the 20th century. He said, it's audacious to say that God can make us holy like himself. And then he added, it's even more audacious to say that God cannot. God has plans for us to celebrate and to live in freedom. What does that look like? This is the part that often gets us. We often think freedom means we can do whatever we want. That we're finally going to get what we have been yearning to get. When in actuality, freedom in Christ is surrender. We're we're free from having to grasp. We can let go. We're free from having to accumulate. We can give away. We have freedom to love when we want to hate. We are free to forgive when we often want to hang on to our bitterness. It is freedom to let go of life. Freedom of, to, 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 from having to get everything we want. Freedom from self-centeredness. To the freedom and the joy of letting go. Freedom to live like Christ who gave up everything and went to the cross and out of the cross came the empty tomb and the resurrection. And that is God's call on our lives to be free. And the answer to our chains is not in us. It's in Christ. The answer is not we work harder, we try harder, we fight a little bit more. We're really working those chains, trying to get them loose. We can never get them loose. Most of us spend our lives trying to get them loose. The answer is surrender. It's simply placing our hands in front of Christ and letting him unlock the chains. Letting him open the prison doors. Setting us free to be who we were created to be in him. It is about surrendering to him, surrendering to his way, surrendering our lives and finding freedom. Up until I was about 18 years old, everything about my life was centered in the church. My dad was a pastor So it always felt like we were at church more than we were anywhere else, even home. I'm sure that wasn't true, but that that was my upbringing. And it was good, and I give thanks to God for it. I was always taught about Christ from as early an age as I can possibly remember. I have always known about Christ. 
When I went away to college, I did what a lot of people, a lot of students do when raised in the church. I backed away from all of that. I still wanted to be a Christian. I still want to be that much of a Christian. So I backed away from the church. And, and of course, when you back away from the church, you inadvertently back away from Christ. They're tied together. And those first, the first semester of college was pretty much just what I'm doing whatever I wanted to do. In the midst of that, I, I was cast as the lead character in a jazz musical version of Pilgrim's Progress. It might sound odd to you if you've read that story. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was interesting. Uh, the guy who wrote it, his name is Ted Nichols. He was the uh, at that time the musical director for Hanna Barbera cartoons, and um, he came to visit us. He had some connections to, to the college. He came to visit us there, and instant celebrity. I mean, after all, the guy knew Fred Flintstone. So you know, what more could you want? And, and he, you know, he wrote this musical, and and so. I, as part of the musical, if you know the, this allegory that John Bunyan wrote, he's got this burden that he's carrying throughout the story as he goes through these various difficulties and temptations and the struggle of his journey that is his progress. And in this, in this musical, I wore this backpack that was weighted down. And all through the story of dragging this backpack around as I make my way through the various parts of this journey. And I can vividly remember the very last scene, standing on this empty stage and surrounded by all of the people who represent all of the ways in which I have encountered struggles in life and often failed. And they are, they have, they are completely surrounding me and they are spinning me in a circle. And the lights are flashing and the music is blaring. It's just this chaotic moment in which everything is, is coming to an apex. And when it reaches the very highest point of light and sound and emotion, everything stops. And I fall to the ground. The lights go out, and it's just silence. Everyone around me disappears. And I just lie there on the floor in silence. After a few moments, I get up on my knees and realize that my backpack is gone. And the very last words of that musical come from off stage. As Pilgrim's wife calls to him, not Pilgrim, but she says, Christian, Christian, it's time for dinner. Christian. And I can still remember that last performance, lying there on the floor and having an encounter with God. I have no idea if anybody else was aware of it, but I was lying there having an encounter with God. That was me. It wasn't, it wasn't pilgrim anymore. That was me. And lying there on the floor, 
saying to God, I want to be free. I want to be free from these things that are chaining me, that I've thought are so great, and I realize they're not. And when I got up and that pack was off my back, it was more than just symbolic, it was real. From that moment on, I walked off that stage a different person. And from that moment, I have had other, ba- other packs that have been on me. And I've had other things that have chained me. And I've had continual struggles just like you have. But something about that moment gave me a desire to want freedom more than enslavement. And it's been a journey ever since. I don't know what things you may feel are enslaving you today. But I suspect for almost all of us, it's something. And Paul tells us that Christ, the resurrected Lord, wants to set us free and to fill us with joy. I just finished this week reading Brennan Manning's book, Souvenirs of Solitude. And in this, at the end of each of the devotions, he includes a poem by a former friend, Sue Garmon. One of those poems especially grabbed me as I read it. Because it speaks to us about our cry for freedom. And I've asked Jim Zoller if he would come and read it for us. Lord, I think maybe you're getting accustomed to the idea that I'm not an archangel. Of course, you know I'm not, and I know I'm not. But I must admit that periodically I try to behave as though I were. And most of my problems seem to stem directly from that fact. I'd like to think I'm perfect, with no limitations, impure motives, human weaknesses, everything under control, and all together. And every time I catch myself thinking and behaving that way, life becomes not just burdensome, but horrendous. Lord, thank you for letting me know that I'm not perfect yet, but that you'll get me there if I let you. Thank you for reminding me that I'll never have it all together until we meet face to face. Lord, do archangels need you as much as I do? Father, thank you for setting me free, free to be poor, little, weak. Thank you for setting me free, free to be misunderstood, rejected, forgotten. 
Thank you for setting me free, free to be unsatisfied, empty, stripped. Thank you for setting me free, free to break through, let go, enter the flame. Father, thank you for setting me free by binding me more closely to yourself. to be set free and fill us with the joy of the resurrected Christ as we surrender and find true freedom in him amen